Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 228. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Two stories today. Can't get better than that. First one up is Adam Drive by Charles L. Fontenay. Harking back to the golden days of science fiction. Then we have movie soundtracks by our very own David Raiklin. The final bit of fiction is Observation Post by fantastic writer Alan Steele. How about that? There you go. That's today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. But before all that, we have Skeet with this month's art. Skeet, sir! Hello, Starship Sofa listeners. This is Skeet Sianski coming at you again for a short segment of what I'm calling Covering the Sofa. It's uh, just a little bit of uh, background information on the artists that we feature every month. And this month's artist is Hector Pineda-Garcia. He is a, uh, at least as far as my first impression goes, he is a surreal meet steampunk sort of uh, erotic uh, type artist. And I know erotic is not the normal theme for this, but the piece that I saw that really caught my eye seemed uh, very unusual and uh, steampunk kind of jumped straight out at me. And so that's why we went ahead and asked him to see if we could use this uh, wonderful piece of artwork for this month's edition. Uh, He has a a knack for uh, blending multimedia designs of all sorts and uh it's just a beautiful uh piece of artwork that's gracing our cover for this uh march um the name of the cover is uh alas para maria which translates to wings for mary and uh as you can see it 
it looks kind of painful, but it's very interesting. It's very well put together, uh, very realistic looking, and uh, the techniques that he has to uh, blend uh, the uh, photograph and the oil and everything else that he's doing here is just fantastic stuff. Uh, he sent in a short bio, and I'm going to go ahead and read that to you guys and give you a little background on Hector. He was born in 1968 in Mexico City. He graduated in pharmaceutical industry chemistry for the IPN with a professional practice for more than one decade in the field of logistics. His art is constructed by ideas based on science, legends, and myths. The practice of the traditional art, like drawing and painting, it was enriched recently with the photography and the photo manipulation, all of them uh, learned of completely self-educated form. His work might be described in general inside the sensual surrealism or dark surrealism. Uh, his work tackles the deepest topics of the subconscious from a philosophical and erotic point of view. Now, I, I have to admit that um, I do a lot of uh, looking on the Internet and trying to find artwork that uh, not only you know stimulates uh, my ideas for my own art, you know, uh, on my own artwork that I do, but, you know, I'm also trying to find stuff that, um, is really interesting to look at. I mean, you could stare at this piece of artwork and find, uh, just, a, a, all kinds of ideas from it. And there's so much detail in it that it's very impressive because there's one thing that I, I, I can't appreciate is when an artist really takes the time to create something that, um, you know, gets your mind rolling and keeps you captivated. And then you look at this for hours and probably really, uh, you know, feel like you're getting pulled into the room with Mar Marie. So, or, um, you know, what I'd really like everyone to do is uh, when, when you get done listening to podcasts, or if you listen to it right now, go and put it up on your iTunes or whatever uh, feed that you're using, and uh, just take a good look at it. And uh, if, you, if you're interested in seeing uh, any of his other artwork, he uh, is uh, an artist that we found through deviantart.com. If you uh, punch in www uh, Elfes, uh, dot dot com, and that's spelled E-L-Y-P-H-A-S dot D-E-V-I-A-N-T-A-R-T dot com. And you can find a uh, little bit more information about him. He's got a, a, uh, another bio on there. He was interviewed for that as well. And uh, just a huge selection of other pieces that he's done in the past. So I encourage everyone to go check out his stuff. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed this this month's episode. Um, I, I do have one uh, final little addition. I wanted to do an amendment from last month's uh, podcast that we put out. Uh, I had uh, featured the artist um, Michelle Bobot, and throughout the whole audio that I did, I kept calling him Michael Bobot. So I'd like to apologize to Michelle for that, and uh, just, uh, again, thank him for contributing to the show. And you can also find his artwork at www.mbobot.com, and that's M-B-O-H-B-O-T.com. Thanks again, and everyone have a great month, and it's back to you, Tony. <laughs> Skeet, I thank you very much, sir. Fantastic. We'll jump straight into Adam Drive by Charles L. Fontenier. The story first aired or first came about in the If April magazine 1956. Charles Fontenier, born in 1917 and died 2007. Fair old bird. <laughs> Loads of short stories. 
First kind of kicked off writing in 1954 with The Disqualified. Then his last story, Miss Hetty in Harlan in 1996. Novels first came about was Twice Upon a Time in 1958 and his final one, Modal, 2001. He had some collections out there, 1996, The Collected Works of Charles L. Fontenay, Volume 1. Here, There and Elsewhere, 1999. He also had Here, There, Elsewhere, Volume 2 and Volume 3 as well. The story is narrated by Jim Phillips. Jim has done a couple of stories for Starships over and narrations, should I say, and we're hopefully going to get some more as well. Jim, thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Atom Drive by Charles L. Fontenay. The two spaceship crews were friendly enemies, sitting across the table from each other for their last meal before blastoff. Outside the ports, the sky was nothing but light-streaked blackness, punctured periodically by Earth glare for Space Station 2 whirled softly on its axis, creating an artificial gravity. Donner, I figured you the last man ever to desert the rockets for a hot rod tow job, chided Russo Bot, captain of the Mars Corporation's gleaming new freighter, Marsward 18. Bot was fat and red-faced, and one of the shrewdest space captains in the business. Johnner Johns, at the other end of the table, inclined his grizzled head and smiled. Times change, Russo. He answered quietly. Even the Mars Corporation can't stop that. Is it true that you're pulling 5,000 tons of cargo, Captain? Asked one of the crewmen of the Marsward 18. Something like that. Agreed Johnner, and his smile broadened. And I have only about twice the fuel supply you carry for a hundred-ton payload. The communicator above them squawked and blared. Captain Johns and Captain Bott of Martian Competition Run, please report to control for a final briefing. I knew it, grumbled Bot, getting heavily and reluctantly to his feet. I haven't gotten to finish a meal on this blasted merry-go-round yet. In the space station's control section, Commander Ortega of the Space Control Commission, an aesthetic officer in plain blues, looked them up and down severely. As you know, gentlemen, he said, blast-off time is 0600. Tonnage of cargo, fuel, and empty vessels cannot be a factor under the law. The Mars Corporation will retain its exclusive franchise to the Earth-Mars run unless the ship sponsored by the Atom Star Company returns to Earth with full cargo at least 20 hours ahead of the ship sponsored by the Mars Corporation. Cargo must be unloaded at Mars and new cargo taken on. I do not consider the 20-hour bias in favor of the Mars Corporation a fair one, said Ortega severely, turning his gaze to Bot. But the Space Control Commission does not make the laws. It enforces them. Docking and loading facilities will be available to both of you on an equal basis at Phobos and Marsport. Good luck. He shook hands with both of them. Saturn, I'm glad to get out of there, exclaimed Bot, mopping his brow as they left the control section. Every time I take a step, I feel like I'm falling on my face. It's because the central station's so close to the center, replied Johnner. The station's spinning to maintain artificial gravity, and your feet are away from the center. As long as you're standing upright, the pull is straight up and down to you. But actually, your feet are moving faster than your head in a larger orbit. When you try to move, as in normal gravity, your body swings out of that line of pull and you nearly fall. The best corrective I've found is to lean backward slightly when you start to walk. As the two space captains walked back toward the wardroom together, Bot said, Johnner, I hear the Mars Corporation offered you the Marsward 18 for this run first, and you turned them down. 
Why? You piloted the Marsward 5 and the Wayward Lady from Mars Corp when those upstarts in the Argentine were trying to crack the Earth-Mars run. This Star couldn't have enough money to buy you away from Mars Corp. No, Mars Corp offered me more, said Johnner, soberly now. But this atomic drive is the future of space travel, Russo. Mars Corp has it, but they're sitting on it because they've got their fingers in hydrazine interests here, and the atom drive will make hydrazine useless for space fuel. Unless I can break the franchise for Star, it may be a hundred years before we switch to the atom drive in space. The hell difference does that make to you? asked Bob bluntly. Hydrazine's expensive, replied Johnner. Reaction mass isn't, and you use less of it. I was born on Mars, Russo. Mars is my home, and I want to see my people get the supplies they need from Earth at a reasonable transport cost, not pay through the nose for every packet of vegetable seed. They reached the wardroom door. Too bad I have to degrav my old chief, said Bot, chuckling. But I'm a rocket man myself, and I say to hell with your hot rod atom drive. I'm sorry you got deflected into this run, Johnner. You'll never break Mars Corp's orbit. The Marsward 18 was a huge vessel, the biggest the Mars Corporation ever had put into space. It was a collection of spheres and cylinders, joined together by a network of steel ties. Nearly 90% of its weight was fuel for the one-way trip to Mars. Its competitor, the Radiant Hope, riding ten miles away in orbit around the Earth, was the strangest-looking vessel ever to get clearance from a space station. It looked like a tug towing a barge. The tug was the atomic power plant. Two miles behind, attached by a thin cable, was the passenger compartment and cargo. On the control deck of the Radiant Hope, Johnner gripped a microphone and shouted profane instructions at the pilot of a squat ground-to-space rocket twenty miles away. Tan Li Cho, the ship's engineer, was peering out the port at the speck of light toward which Johnner was directing his wrath, while Kokel, the Martian astrogator, worked at his charts on the other side of the deck. I thought all the cargo was aboard, Johnner, said Tan. It is, said Johnner, laying the mic aside. That G-boat isn't hauling cargo. It's going with us. I'm not taking any chances on Mars Corp refusing to ferry our cargo back and forth at Mars. He is plotted, Johnner, boomed Kogel, turning his head to peer at them with huge eyes through the spidery tangle of his thin, double-jointed arms and legs. He reached an eight-foot arm across the deck and handed Johnner his figures. Johnner gave them to Tan. Figure out power for that one, Tan, ordered Johnner, and took his seat in the cushioned control chair. Tan pulled a slide rule from his tunic pocket, but his black almond eyes rested quizzically on Johnner. It's four hours before blastoff, he reminded. I've cleared power for this with space control, replied Johnner. That planet-loving G-boat jockey missed orbit. We'll have to swing out a little and go to him. On a conventional spacecraft, the order for acceleration would have sent the engineer to the engine deck to watch his gauges and report by intercom. But the Radiant Hope's engine deck was the atomic tug two miles ahead which Tan, in heavy armor, would enter only in emergencies. He calculated for a moment, then called softly to Johnner. Pile one in ten. In ten, confirmed Johnner, pulling a lever on the calibrated gauge of the radio control. Pile two in fifteen. In fifteen. Check. I'll have the length of burst figured for you in a jiffy. A faint glow appeared around the atomic tug far ahead, and there was the faintest shiver in the ship. But after a moment, Kokel said in a puzzled tone, No geez, Donner. 
Engine not work? Sure, she's working, said Johnner with a grin. You'll never get any more G than we've got now, Coco. All the way to Mars. Our maximum acceleration will be one three thousandth G. One three thousandth, exclaimed Tan, shaken out of his oriental calm. Johnner, the Marsward would blast away at one or two Gs. How do you expect to beat that at one three thousandth? Because they have to cut off and coast most of the way in an elliptic orbit like any other rocket, answered Johnner calmly. We drive straight across the system, under power all the time. We accelerate halfway, decelerate the other half. But one three thousandth. You'll be surprised at what constant power can do. I know Bot, and I know the trick he's going to use. It's obvious from the blast-off time they arranged. He's going to tack off the moon and use his power rat to cut 20 days off that regular 237-day schedule. But this tugboat will make it in 154 days. They took aboard the 200-ton landing boat. By the time they got it secured, the radio already was sounding warnings for blast-off. Zero hour arrived. Again, Johnner pulled levers, and again the faint glow appeared around the tail of their distant tug. Across space, the exhaust of the Marsward 18 flared into a blinding flame. In a moment, it began to pull ahead visibly, and soon was receding like a meteor. Near the Radiant Hope, the space station seemed not to have changed position at all. The race is not always to the swift, remarked Johnner philosophically. And where the tortoise? said Tan. How about filling us in on this John Johnner? You should, Johnner, agreed Kokel. Don know all about crazy new engine. I know all about crazy new orbit. Both not know all. You tell. I plan to anyway, said Johnner. I had figured on having Serge in on it, but he wouldn't understand much of it anyhow. There's no use in waking him up. Serge was the ship's doctor psychologist and fourth member of the crew. He was asleep below on the center deck. For your information, Kokel, said Johnner. The atomic engine produces electrical energy, which accelerates reaction mass. Actually, it's a crude ion engine. Tan can explain the details to you later. But the important thing is that the fuel is cheap. The fuel-to-cargo ratio is low, and constant acceleration is practical. As for you, Tan, I was surprised at your not understanding why we'll use low acceleration. To boost the engine power and give us more Gs, we'd either have to carry more fuel or coast part of the way on momentum, like an ordinary rocket. This way is more efficient, and our 63-day margin over the Marsward each day is more than enough for unloading and loading more cargo and fuel. With those figures, I can't see how Mars Corp expects to win this competition, said Tan. We've got them flat on the basis of performance, agreed Johnner, so we'll have to watch for their tricks. I know Mars Corp. That's why I arranged to take aboard that G-boat at the last minute. Mars Corp controls all the G-boats at Marsport and they're smart enough to keep us from using them, in spite of Space Control Commission. As for refueling for the return trip, we can knock a chunk off Phobos for reaction mass. The meteor alarm bells clanged suddenly, and the screen lit up once with a fast-moving red line that traced the path of the approaching object. Miss us about half a mile, said Johnner after a glance at the screen. Must be pretty big, and it's coming up. He and Tan floated to one of the ports and in a few moments saw the object speed by. That's no meteor, exclaimed Johnner with a puzzled frown. That's man-made, but it's too small for a G-boat. The radio blared. All craft in orbit near Space Station 2. Warning. All craft near Space Station 2. Experimental missile misfired from White Sands. Repeat. Experimental missile misfired from White Sands. Coordinates? Find time to tell us, remarked Tan dryly. Experimental missile hell, 
snorted Johnner, comprehension dawning. Kokel, what would have happened if we hadn't shifted orbit to take aboard that G-boat? Kokel calculated a moment. It's our engines, he announced. Dead center. Johnner's blue eyes clouded ominously. Looks like they're playing for keeps this time, boys. The Brotherhood of Spacemen is an exclusive club. Any captain, astrogator, or engineer is likely to be well known to his colleagues, either personally or by reputation. The ship's doctor psychologist is in a different category. Most of them sign on for a few runs for the adventure of it, as a means of getting back and forth between planets without paying the high cost of passage or to pick up even more money than they can get from lucrative planet-bound practice. Donner did not know Serge the Radiant Hope's doctor. Neither Tan nor Kokel had ever heard of him, but Serge appeared to know his business well enough, and was friendly enough. It was Serge's first trip, and he was very interested in the way the ship operated. He nosed into every corner of it and asked a hundred questions a day. You're as inquisitive as a cadet spaceman, Serge, Johnner told him on the twenty-fifth day out. Everybody knew everyone else well by then, which meant that Johnner and Kokel, who had served together before, had become acquainted with Tan and Serge. There's a lot to see and learn about space, Captain, said Serge. He was a young fellow, with fair hair and an easy grin. Think I could go outside? If you keep the lifeline hooked on, the suits have magnetic shoes to hold you to the hull of the ship, but you can lose your footing. Thanks, said Serge. He touched his hand to his forehead and left the control deck. Johnner, near the end of his eight-hour duty shift, watched the dials. The red light showing the inner airlock door was open blinked on. It blinked off, and then the outer airlock indicator went on and off. A shadow fell across Johnner briefly. He glanced at the port and reached for the microphone. Careful, and don't step on any of the ports, he warned Serge. Magnetic souls won't hold on them. I'll be careful, sir, answered Serge. No one but a veteran spaceman would have noticed the faint quiver that ran through the ship, but Johnner felt it. Automatically, he swung his control chair and his eyes swept to the bank of dials. At first, he saw nothing. The outer lock light blinked on and off, then the inner lock indicator. That was Serge coming back inside. Then Johnner noted that the hand on one dial rested on zero. Above the dial was the word, Acceleration. His eyes snapped to the radio controls. The atomic pile levers were still at their proper calibration. The dials above them said the engines were working properly. The atomic tug was still accelerating, but passengers and cargo were in freefall. Swearing, Johnner jerked at the levers to pull out the piles aboard the tug. A blue flash flared across the control board, momentarily blinding him. Johnner recoiled, only his webbed safety belt preventing him from plummeting from the control chair. He swung back anxiously to the dials, brushing futilely at the spots that swam before his eyes. He breathed a sigh of relief. The radio controls had operated. The atomic engines had ceased firing. Tentatively, cautiously, he reversed the lever. There was no blue flash this time, but neither did the dials quiver. He swore. Something had burned out in the radio controls. He couldn't reverse the tug. He punched the general alarm button viciously, and the raucous clangor of the bell sounded through the confines of the ship. One by one, the other crew members popped up to the control deck from below. He turned the controls over to Kokel. Take readings on that damn tug, Johnner ordered. I think our cable broke. Don, let's go take a look. 
When they got outside, they found about a foot of the one-inch cable still attached to the ship. The rest of it, drawn away by the tug before Johnner could cut acceleration, was out of sight. Can it be welded, Ton? It can, but it'll take a while, replied the engineer slowly. First we'll have to reverse that tug and get the other end of that brake. Damn, and the radio controls burnt out. I tried to reverse it before I sounded the alarm. Ton, how fast can you get those controls repaired? Great space, exclaimed Ton softly. Without seeing it, I'd say at least two days, Johnner. Those controls are complicated as hell. They re-entered the ship. Coco was working at his diagrams, and Serge was looking over his shoulder. Johnner took a heat gun quietly from the rack and pointed it at Serge. You'll get below, mister, he commanded grimly. You'll be handcuffed to your bunk from here on out. Sir, I, I don't understand, stammered Serge. Like hell you don't. You cut that cable, Johnner accused. Serge started to shrug, but he dropped his eyes. They, they paid me, he said in a low tone. They paid me a thousand solars. What good would a thousand dollars do you when you're dead, Serge? Dead of suffocation and drifting forever in space. Serge looked up in astonishment. Why, you can still reach Earth by radio easy, he said. It wouldn't take long for a rescue ship to reach us. Chemical rockets have their limitations, said Johnner coldly. And you don't realize what speed we've built up with steady acceleration. We'd head straight out of the system, and nothing could intercept us. If that tug had gotten too far before we'd noticed it was gone. He jabbed the white-faced doctor with the muzzle of the heat gun. Get below, he ordered. I'll turn you over to space control at Mars. When Serge had left the control deck, Johnner turned to the others. His face was grave. That tug picked up speed before I could shut off the engines, after the cable was cut, he said. It's moving away from us slowly and at a tangent. And solar gravity's acting on both bodies now. By the time we get those controls repaired, the drift may be such that we'll waste weeks maneuvering the tug back. I could jet out to the tug in a spacesuit before it gets too far away, said Ton thoughtfully. But that wouldn't do any good. There's no way of controlling the engines at the tug. It has to be done by radio. If we get out of this, remind me to recommend that atomic ships always carry a spare cable, said Johnner gloomily. If we had one, we could splash them and hold the ship to the tug while the controls are repaired. That's right, exclaimed Johnner, brightening. Most of our cargo's cable. That 4,000-ton spool we're hauling back there is 6,000 miles of cable to lay a television network between the Martian cities. Television cable, repeated Ton doubtfully. Will that be strong enough? It's bound in Flonat, that new fluorine compound. It's strong enough to tow this whole cargo at a couple of G's. There's nothing aboard the ship that would cut a length off of it. A heat gun at full power wouldn't even scorch it. But we can unwind enough of it and block the spool. It'll hold the ship to the tug until the controls can be repaired. Then we can reverse the tug and weld the cable. You mean the whole 6,000 miles of it's in one piece? Demanded Ton in astonishment. That's not so much. The cable-laying steamer Domina carried 3,000 miles in one piece to lay Atlantic cables in the early 20th century. But how will we ever get 4,000 tons in one piece down to Mars? Asked Ton. No G-boat can carry that load. Johnner chuckled. Same way they got it up from Earth to the ship. He answered. They attached one end of it to the G-boat and sent it up to the orbit, then wound it up on a fast winch. Since the G-boat will be decelerating to Mars, the unwinding will have to be slowed or the cable would tangle itself all over Sirtis. Sounds like it's made to order, said Ton, grinning. I'll get into my spacesuit. You'll get to work on the radio controls, contradicted Johnner, getting up. 
That's something I can't do, and I can get into a spacesuit and haul a length of cable out to the tug. Cokel can handle the winch. DeVete, the Atom Star Company's representative at Mars City, and Kruger of the Space Control Commission were waiting when the Radiant Hope's G-boat dropped down from the Phobos station and came to rest in a wash of jets. They rode out to the G-boat together in a Commission ground car. Johnner emerged from the G-boat, following the handcuffed Surge. He's all yours, Johnner told Kruger, gesturing at Surge. You have my radio reports on the cable cutting, and I'll make my log available to you. Kruger put his prisoner in the front seat of the ground car beside him, and Johnner climbed in the back seat with DeVete. I brought the crates of dyes for the ground car factory down this time, Johnner told DeVete. We'll bring down all the loose cargo before shooting the television cable down. While they're unloading the G-boat, I wish you'd get the tanks refilled with hydrazine and nitric acid. I've got enough to get back up, but not enough for a round trip. What do you plan to do? asked DeVete. He was a dark-skinned, long-faced man with a sardonic twist to his mouth. I've got to sign on a new ship's doctor to replace Surge. When the Marsward comes in, Mars Corp will have a dozen G-boats working around the clock to unload and reload her. With only one G-boat, we've got to make every hour count. We still have reaction mass to pick up on Phobos. Right, agreed DeVete. You can take the return cargo up in one load, though. It's just twenty tons of Martian relics for the Solar Museum. Mars to Earth cargoes run light. At the administration building... Johnner took his leave of DeVete and went up to the Space Control Commission's personnel office on the second floor. He was in luck. On the board as applying for a Mars Earth run as ship's doctor psychologist was one name. Lana Eldon. He looked up the name in the Mars City directory and dialed into the city from a nearby telephone booth. A woman's voice answered. Is Lana Eldon there? asked Johnner. I'm Lana Eldon, she said. Johnner swore under his breath. A woman but if she weren't qualified, her name would not have been on the commission board. The verbal contract was made quickly, and Johnner cut the commission monitor into the line to make it binding. That was done often when rival ships, even of the same line, were bidding for the services of crewmen. Last off time is 2100 tonight, he said, ending the interview. Be here. Johnner left the personnel office and walked down the hall. At the elevator, DeVete and Kruger hurried out, almost colliding with him. Johnner, we've run into trouble exclaimed DeVete. Space fuels won't sell us any hydrazine and nitric acid to refuel the tanks. They say they have a new contract with Mars Corp that takes all their supply. Contract hell, snorted Johnner. Mars Corp owns space fuels. What can be done about it, Kruger? Kruger shook his head. I'm all for you, but space control has no jurisdiction, he said. If a private firm wants to restrict its sales to a franchise line, there's nothing we can do about it. If you had a franchise, we could force them to allot fuel on the basis of cargo handled, since Space Fuels has a monopoly here. But you don't have a franchise yet. Johnner scratched his gray head thoughtfully. It was a serious situation. The atom-powered Radiant Hope could no more make a planetary landing than the chemically-powered ships. Its power gave a low, sustained thrust that permitted it to accelerate constantly over long periods of time. To beat the powerful pull of planetary surface gravity, the terrific burst of quick energy from the streamlined G-boats, planetary landing craft, was needed. Eh, we can still handle it, Johnner said at last. With only twenty tons return cargo, we can take it up this trip. Add some large parachutes to that, DeVete. We'll shoot the end of the cable down by signal rocket out in the lowlands and stop the winch when we've made contact, long enough to attach the rest of the cargo to the cable. Pull it down with the cable, 
and with Mars's low gravity, the parachutes will keep it from being damaged. But when Jonner got back to the landing field to check on unloading operations, his plan was smashed. As he approached the G-boat, a mechanic wearing an ill-concealed smirk came up to him. <laughs> Captain, looks like you sprung a leak in your fuel line, he said. All your hydrazines leaked out in the sand. Jonner swung from the waist and knocked the man flat. Then he turned on his heel and went back to the administration building to pay the ten-credit fine he would be assessed for assaulting a spaceport employee. The Space Control Commission's hearing room in Mars City was almost empty. The examiner sat on the bench, resting his chin on his hand as he listened to testimony. In the plaintiff's section sat Jonner, flanked by DeVete and Lana Eldon. In the defense box were the Mars Corporation attorney and Captain Russo Bott of the Marsward 18. Kruger, seated near the rear of the room, was the only spectator. The Mars Corporation attorney had succeeded in delaying the final hearing more than a 42-day Martian month by legal maneuvers. Meanwhile, the Marsward 18 had blasted down to Phobos, and G-boats had been shuttling back and forth, unloading the vessel and reloading it for the return trip to Earth. When testimony had been completed, the examiner shuffled through his papers. He put on his spectacles and peered over them at the litigants. It is the ruling of this court, he said formally, that the plaintiffs have not presented sufficient evidence to prove tampering with the fuel line of the G-boat of the spaceship Radiant Hope. There is no evidence that it was cut or burned, but only that it was broken. The court must remind the plaintiffs that this could have been done accidentally through inept handling of cargo. Since the plaintiffs have not been able to prove their contention, this court of complaint has no alternative than to dismiss the case. The examiner arose and left the hearing room. Bot waddled across the aisle, puffing. Too bad, Johnner, he said. I don't like the stuff Mars Corp's pulling, and I think you know I don't have anything to do with it. I want to win, but I want to win fair and square. If there's anything I can do to help. Haven't got a spare G-boat in your pocket, have you? Retorted Johnner with a rueful smile. Bot pulled at his jowls. Marsward isn't carrying G-boats, he said regretfully. They all belong to the port, and Mars Corp's got them so tied up you'll never get a sniff of one. But if you want to get back to your ship, Johnner, I can take you up to Phobos with me, as my guest. Jonner shook his head. I figure on taking the Radiant Hope back to Earth, he said. But I'm not blasting off without cargo until it's too late for me to beat you on the run. You sure? This'll be my last ferry trip. The Marsward blasts off for Earth at 0300 tomorrow. No thanks, Russo. But I will appreciate your taking my ship's doctor, Dr. Eldon, up to Phobos. Done. Agreed Bot. Let's go, Dr. Eldon. The G-boat leaves Marsport in two hours. Jonner watched Bot puff away, with the slender, white-clad brunette at his side. Bot personally would see Lana Eldon safely aboard the Radiant Hope, even if it delayed his own blastoff. Morosely, he left the hearing room with DeVete. What I can't understand, said the latter, is why all this dirty work? Why didn't Marscorp just use one of their atom drive ships for the competition run? "'Because whatever ship is used on a competition run "'has to be kept in service on the franchised run,' answered Jonner. "'Marscorp has millions tied up in hydrazine interests, "'and they're more interested in keeping an atomic ship off this run "'than they are in a Monopoly franchise. "'But they tie in together. "'If Marscorp loses the Monopoly franchise "'and Atom Star puts in Atom Drive ships, "'Marscorp will have to switch to Atom Drive to meet the competition. 
If we had a franchise, we could force space fuels to sell us hydrazine, said Devit unhappily. Well, we don't. And at this rate, we'll never get one. Jonner and Devit were fishing at the Mars City Recreation Center. It had been several weeks since the Marsward 18 blasted off to Earth with a full cargo. And still the atomic ship Radiant Hope rested on Phobos with most of her Mars-bound cargo still aboard. And still her crew languished at the Phobos space station. And still Jonner moved back and forth between Mars City and Marsport daily, racking his brain for a solution that would not come. How in space do you get 20 tons of cargo up to an orbit 5,800 miles out without any rocket fuel? He demanded of Devit more than once. He received no satisfactory answer. The recreation center was a two-acre park that lay beneath the plastic dome of Mars City. Above them they could see swift-moving Phobos and distant Deimos among the other stars that powdered the night. In the park around them, colonists rode the amusement machines, canoed along the canal that twisted through the park or sipped refreshment at scattered tables. A dozen or more sat, like Jonner and Devit, around the edge of the tiny lake, fishing. Devit's line tightened. He pulled in a streamlined, flapping object from which the light glistened wetly. Good catch, complimented Jonner. It's worth a full credit. David unhooked his catch and laid it on the bank beside him. It was a metal fish. Live fish were unknown on Mars. They paid for the privilege of fishing for a certain time, and any fish caught were sold back to the management at a fixed price, depending on size, to be put back into the lake. You're pretty good at it, said Jonner. It's your third tonight. It's all in the speed at which you reel in your line, explained David. The fish move at preset speeds. They're made to turn and catch a hook that moves across their path at a slightly slower speed than they're swimming. The management changes the speeds once a week to keep the fishermen from getting too expert. You can't beat the management, chuckled Jonner. But if it's a matter of matching orbital speeds to make contact, I ought to do pretty well when I get the hang of it. He cocked an eye up toward the transparent dome. Phobos had moved across the sky into Capricorn since he last saw her. His memory automatically ticked off the satellite's orbital speed, 1.32 miles a second. Speed in relation to planetary motion. Why go over that again? One had to have fuel first. Meanwhile, the Radiant Hope lay idle on Phobos, and its crew whiled away the hours at the space station inside the moon, their feet spinning faster than their heads. Now, that wasn't true on Phobos because it didn't have a spin to impart artificial gravity, like the space stations around Earth. He sat up suddenly. David looked at him in surprise. Jonner's lips moved silently for a moment. Then he got to his feet. Where can I use a radio phone? He asked. One in my office, said David, standing up. Let's go, quick, before Phobos sets. They turned in their rods, David collecting the credits for his fish, and left the recreation center. When they reached the Atom Star Company's Martian office, Jonner plugged in the radio phone and called the Phobos space station. He got Tan. All of you get aboard, Jonner ordered. And have Coco call me. He signed off and turned to Devit. Can we charter a plane to haul our earthbound cargo out of Marsport? A plane? I suppose so. Where do you want to haul it? Cherax is as good as any other place, but I need a fast plane. I think we can get it. Marscorp still controls all the airplanes but the Mars government keeps a pretty strict finger on their planet-bound operations. They can't refuse a cargo haul without good reason. Just to play safe, have some friend of yours whom they don't know charter the plane in his name. They won't know it's us till we start loading cargo. Right. 
said David, picking up the telephone. I know just the man. Tow motors scuttled across the landing area at Marsport, shifting the cargo that had been destined for the Radiant Hope from the helpless G-boat to a jet cargo plane. Nearby, watching the operation, were Johnner and DeVete, with the Marsport agent of Mars Air Transport Company. We didn't know Adamstar was the one chartering the plane until you ordered the G-boat cargo loaded on it, confessed the Mars Air agent. I see you and Mr. DeVete are signed up to accompany the cargo. You'll have to rent suits for the trip. We have to play it safe, and there's always the possibility of a forced landing. There are a couple of spacesuits aboard the G-boat that we'll want to take along, said Johnner casually. We'll just wear those instead. Okay. The agent spread his hands and shrugged. Everybody at Marsport knows about you bucking Mars Corp, Captain. What you expect to gain by transferring your cargo to tracks is beyond me, but it's your business. An hour later, the chartered airplane took off with a thunder of jets. Aboard was the 20-ton cargo the Radiant Hope was supposed to carry to Earth, plus some large parachutes. The Mars Air pilot wore a light suit with plastic helmet designed for survival in the thin, cold Martian air. Johnner and DeVete wore the bulkier spacesuits. Five minutes out of Marsport, Johnner thrust the muzzle of a heat gun in the pilot's back. Set it on automatic, strap on your parachute, and bail out, he ordered. We're taking over. The pilot had no choice. He went through the plane's airlock and jumped, helped by a hearty boost from Johnner. His parachute blossomed out as he drifted down toward the green Certus Major lowland. Johnner didn't worry about him. He knew the pilot's helmet radio would reach Marsport and a helicopter would rescue him shortly. I don't know what you're trying to do, Johnner, said David apprehensively over his space helmet radio. But whatever it is, you'd better do it fast. They'll have every plane on Mars looking for us in half an hour. Let them look and keep quiet a while retorted Johnner. I've got some figuring to do. He put the plane on automatic, took off the spacesuit handhooks, and scribbled figures on a scrap of paper. He tuned in the plane's radio and called Kokel on Phobos. They talked to each other briefly in Martian. The darker green line of a canal crossed the green lowland below them. Good, there's Drosinus, muttered Johnner. Let's see, time 1424 hours, speed 660 miles an hour... Johnner boosted the jets a bit and watched the terrain. By Saturn, I almost overran it, he exclaimed. DeVete, smash out those ports. Break out the ports, repeated DeVete. That'll depressurize the cabin. That's right, so you better be sure your spacesuit's secure. Obviously puzzled, DeVete strode up and down the cabin, knocking out its six windows with the handhooks of his spacesuit. Johnner maneuvered the plane gently and set it on automatic. He got out of the pilot's seat and strode to the right front port. Reaching through the broken window, he pulled in a section of cable that was trailing alongside. While the baffled DeVete watched, he reeled it in until he brought up the end of it, to which was attached a fish-shaped, finned metal missile. Johnner carried the cable end and the attached missile across the cabin and tossed it out the broken front port on the other side, swinging it so that the 700-mile-an-hour slipstream snapped it back in through the rearmost port like a bullet. Pick it up and pass it out the right rear port, he commanded. We'll have to pass it to each other from port to port. The slipstream won't let us swing it forward and through. In a few moments, the two of them had worked the missile and the cable end to the right front port and in through it. Originating above the plane, it now made a loop through the four open ports. Johnner untied the missile and tied the end to the portion which came into the cabin, making a bowline knot of the loop. DeVete picked up the missile from the floor where Johnner had thrown it. Looks like a spent rocket shell, 
he commented. The signal rocket, said Johnner. The flare trigger was disconnected. He picked up the microphone and called the Radiant Hope on Phobos. We've hooked our fish, Kokel, he told the Martian and laid the mic aside. Means we'd better strap in, said Johnner, suiting the action to the words. You're in for a short trip to Phobos, Devit. Johnner pulled back slowly on the elevator control and the plane began a shallow climb. At 700 miles an hour, it began to attain a height at which its broad wings, broader than those of any terrestrial plane, would not support it. Trying to decide, said DeVeet with forced calm, whether you flipped your helmet. Nope, answered Johnner. Trolling for those fish in Mars City gave me the idea. The rest was no more than an astrogation problem, like any rendezvous with a ship in a fixed orbit, which Coco could figure. Remember that 6,000-mile television cable the ship's hauling? Kokel just shot the end of it down to Mars' surface by signal rocket. We hooked on, and now he'll haul us up to Phobos. He's got the ship's engine hooked onto the cable winch. The jets coughed and stopped. The plane was out of fuel. It was on momentum. To be drawn by the cable, or snap it and fall. Impossible, cried DeVete in alarm. Phobos's orbital speed is more than a mile a second. No cable can take the sudden difference in that in the speed we're traveling. When the slack is gone, it'll break. The slack's gone already. You're thinking of the speed of Phobos, at Phobos. At this end of the cable, we're like the head of a man in the control section of a space station, which is traveling slower than his feet because its orbit is smaller, but it revolves around the center in the same time. Look, Johnner added, I'll put it in round numbers. Figure your cable as part of a radius of Phobos's orbit. Phobos travels at 1.32, but the other end of the radius travels at zero because it's at the center. The cable end, the Martian surface, travels at a speed in between, roughly 1,200 miles an hour, but it keeps up with Phobos's revolution. Since the surface of Mars itself rotates at 500 miles an hour, all I had to do was boost the plane up to 700 to match the speed of the cable end. That cable will haul a hell of a lot more than 20 tons, and that's all that's on it right now. By winching us up slowly, there'll never be too great a strain on it. David looked apprehensively out of the port. The plane was hanging sideways now, and the distant Martian surface was straight out the left-hand ports. The cable was holding. We can make the trip to Earth 83 days faster than the Mars word, said Johnner. They have only about 20 days start. It won't take us but a few days to make Phobos and get this cable and the rest of the cargo shot back to Mars. Atomstar will get its franchise, and you'll see all spaceships switching to the atomic drive within the next decade. How about this plane? asked Devit. We stole it, you know. You can hire a G-boat to take it back to Marsport, said Johnner with a chuckle. Pay Mars Air for the time and the broken ports, and settle out of court with that pilot we dropped. I don't think they'll send you to jail, Devit. He was silent for a few minutes. By the way, Devit, said Johnner then, Radio Atomstar to buy some flown-out cable of their own and ship it to Phobos. Damned if I don't think this is cheaper than G-boats. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is no one's. <laughs> I nearly slipped up there. Sorry. Next up is our very own David Reagan with his movie soundtracks. David, sir. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction, music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raiklin. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. Every once in a while, a project comes along that's so impressive that it has vast commercial success with the public. It wins 
praise from the critics. The peers in that field give it awards and imitate the work. And overall, it has an impression that changes the way people think about that medium and that subject. We're talking about a project that won over 100 international awards, ranging from Writers Guild of America to BAFTA to Spike TV. We're speaking of Uncharted 2 Among Thieves, perhaps the greatest video game ever made. It represents a kind of convergence of storytelling, gameplay, computer programming, visual art, music, sound design, acting. Almost every art that you can think of reaches a kind of high point in Uncharted 2. Let's focus on the music of this seminal interactive entertainment, the music of Greg Edmondson. You may recall him from the soundtrack to Firefly, a unique and genre-blending score from the equally unique and genre-blending sci-fi western TV series from Josh Whedon. You're going to hear music for Uncharted 2 that has grand epic scale, like an action movie, combined with a science fiction fantasy element. It also has world music and travel espionage, every kind of dramatic situation. It's kind of like Indiana Jones for the 21st century. Some people might be surprised that you can have such uh, a wonderful tapestry of symphonic, electronic, and ethnic music in a video game. Some people, including myself, remember when video game music sounded like this. I love the sounds of the 8-bit era, but now we're in the 32-bit era, and high-resolution sound is not only possible, but almost a requirement of many video games, and scores sound like this. Theme 2.0, the current incarnation of Nathan Drake's character theme. He's the hero of the Uncharted series. The soaring, majestic music sets the stage for action on a grand scale. In this installment of the epic saga, featuring Nathan Drake, the many times great-grandson of Sir Francis Drake, we're in search of lost treasure. He has a lamp that holds the secret to the lost treasure of Marco Polo's expedition that contained treasures so remarkable that he could not describe them because they would not be believed. And here we have a grand scale of adventure, but also in that music you hear a sense of potential sadness and depth of feeling that's rare in action-adventure stories of any kind. But for a moment, let's turn to just straight action, brutal combo mambo driven by a world percussion section, plus Chinese ethnic stringed instruments and woodwinds 
and a symphony orchestra with plenty of action-packed brass. Combo Mambo, action music from Uncharted 2. This music is played in more than one action sequence. It's element that can be interactively shaped to fit in different situations. Uh, that's one of the secrets of how to make a coherent experience out of gameplay, is to have recurrent musical motifs like you would in a movie, but also have whole cue sections, pieces of music that you've heard before that tell you, ah, this is what's happening here. It's similar to what happened before, along with the new elements. One of the great new elements in Uncharted 2 is the breadth and depth of the story. The characters are on a mission that begins as a treasure hunt for the lost ships of Marco Polo's expedition. But things quickly go astray, and characters get hurt and killed, separated. The bad guys are after the treasure, and this is actually going to turn into a chase across a continent. First, the characters from the first episode, Nathan and his friends, have a reunion. This is both a happy and a sad time, and that's reflected in the music of Reunion, which also features one of the great instrumentalists in the world, one of the great musicians, Karen Hahn, who plays the soulful, vocalesque, Erhu solo version of Nate's theme, Reunion. peaceful, eloquent music of Reunion, from the soundtrack to the epic video game Uncharted 2, featuring Karen Han Erhu. It's a wonderful ancient Chinese instrument that you hear on soundtracks. It has a unique sound that you'll hear again in the score, although sometimes it's blended with ethnic woodwind instruments and other strings, so you get the sense that it's set in another world. And this is something that all good film composers do, is create a sense of place, of an exotic place, by choosing sounds, instruments, harmonies, melodies, even their style of production, how it's recorded, 
so it sounds like music of a particular place or of some otherworldly place. Now let's travel up to the Himalayas, to the gates of the secret city of Shambhala, the city's secret. The City's Secret. I love the giant tam-tam and the bamboo flute, perhaps a bansuri played by Chris Bleth, and then later the sound of a cantel or perhaps a dulcimer. Amazing combinations of ethnic instruments to suggest the city of Shambhala. The City's Secret from Uncharted 2. Now let's change to monster music, or at least uh, fake yeti music. People dress up to scare our treasure hunters away from the city, and they are disguised as abominable snowmen, and this is the music for them. It has some traditional-sounding high-pitched violins, but it also has distinctly untraditional Tibetan horns. They're like giant alpen horns, and throat singing, and rattling percussion from Balinese gamelan. Here it is, Broken Paradise. The City's Secret, music for Monsters in the Snow from Uncharted 2, composed by Greg Edmondson. Uncharted 2 is performed by the Skywalker Symphony, an 80-piece ensemble based in San Francisco that records at George Lucas's Skywalker Sound, one of the great recording facilities in the world. And the orchestra is truly virtuosic. It's also supplemented with amazing specialists like Karen Hahn on Erhu and the amazing Chris Bleth on all kinds of woodwind instruments, and we'll hear more from him in upcoming shows. Let's take another foray into action with Warzone, again blending the orchestral sounds with the world percussion. This is more like a typical action-adventure movie. Warzone. Warzone, 
action music from Uncharted 2. This has got the great symphony orchestra sound with the driving percussion, but unlike some action movies, the characters and story in the Uncharted interactive entertainment have moments of triumph and moments of sadness or even tragedy. You can see their suffering and struggle to achieve their goals, and you can also see the people in the countryside and in the city who are suffering in poverty as well. So yes, there's lots of rollicking action and moments of comedy, but there's also touching moments that elevate this to a new level of dramatic art. In fact, there's actually a 90-minute movie contained within the game action. Really quite unprecedented. Greg Edmondson was actually given a long time to record and compose the score. Extraordinarily long time frames are often possible in video games where they are not in other media. He could develop the music over a period of a year while the game was being developed to integrate the sound, the melodies, the themes. All of this is being done in parallel with the development of the story and the action and the art. So there's at least potential for greater unity. And as uh, Greg himself points out, it's also the game producers, Naughty Dog. They're willing to put their money into trying things like these unusual ethnic combinations with a symphony orchestra and seeing how it works and taking time to develop it and allow the music to have a life of its own. There are actually important sequences, traveling sequences, where it's just pictures and music, pure cinema. Let's hear what Greg Edmondson has to say about the process of writing music for video games and Uncharted. In Uncharted 2, we were essentially in Tibet, Mm -hmm. so we got to use the giant Tibetan horns and the beautiful Arhu, that gorgeous ancient Chinese violin that mm-hmm. you know Karen Han plays, and you you know you tears run down your eyes. You always find that ethnic people find something that is indigenous to the place they live, mm-hmm. and the sound the sound kind of matches that place. So you find what's 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 indigenous to that place, but then you back off a little bit, and you realize that there are some ethnic instruments that you can put anywhere, and they will still work. Because it's not like everything has to be historically accurate as much as everything has to say we're in an exotic locale. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. But then when we went to Tibet, all of a sudden, you know, now it was big and cinematic, and, and, and also I was ready to, to do something else. So I just told him, I said, let me just write some melodic content, and if you find I'm doing something that's not going to work, then, you know, tell me and let's change it, let's fix it, but let me at least start off doing that. Mm-hmm. And when I work on these, I, I, I work with Amy, of course. But I also work with the Sony team, uh, the SCEA team, and they're the ones who in the long run are going to implement the music into the game. So it's great to be able to work with them from the very beginning so that as I'm writing, they know what I'm writing. And, and that way, when we get to the recording session and, and it's done and now it's time to mix it and implement it into the game, everyone's familiar with the, the pieces that we're working with. What comes as a complete surprise is that sometimes music that you wrote for one section of the game, when all is said and done, may work as well or better in another section. Right. Reason, reason being that games, when you work on them, look nothing like the game when the player gets to actually buy it and play it. Mm-hmm. You just got somebody running around what looks like a, a, a stick box, <laughs> and then when you finally see it, it's this beautiful exotic castle. Greg Edmondson himself on the process of creating the score to Uncharted 2. Let's finish off with one of the great action cues, Cornered, featuring the 90-piece Skywalker Symphony, plus the ethnic percussion. really gives you that sense of scope and scale that you get in a transmedia action spectacular. Cornered from Uncharted 2. science fiction soundtrack this week we'll be back next time we do take requests so tell us your favorite science fiction fantasy video game tv soundtracks and we will play it for you and i'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic connect on facebook and see what we're up to next d-a-v-i-d dot r-a-i-k-l-e-n contact me david raikland at cinematic music one at gmail.com. Be sure to check out my blog at www.davidraiklen.com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners. Thank you very much. Now, Main Fiction is by an author that just kind of 
just does hits every button for me, Alan Steele. We've played a number of short stories by Alan, and if you haven't kind of dipped into his Coyote series, oh, oh man, that's just fantastic. You've got the first one, Coyote, then Coyote Rising, Coyote Frontier, Horizon, and then the final one, Destiny. He's also got a few others kind of on the sidelines of that as well. Hex is his latest one. And there's actually a novella you can go over on Amazon and get called A River Horses which I have done that already, and it is fantastic. And like I say, if you like all, you know, if you're kind of into this coyote world and coyote, like the, the world building of it, that is, is a little kind of sneaky little treat for you as well. The story first appeared in Asimov's science fiction in the September 2011 issue. And it was Alan Steele, if you remember, the Emperor of Mars. Alan won. And what a, he gave a little shout out on the Hugo Awards last year when he won for, I think it was, is it best short story? I wasn't too sure. But he won the Hugo Award with Emperor Mars. And he kind of just said, you know, it would be, you know, one of the reasons why was because Starship played such a fantastic narration of it. And that narrator is narrating this Nathan Lowell. Not only is Nathan, you know, honestly one of the kind of finest narrators I've stumbled across there. And you know what I like as well? It's Nathan knows how to do these narrations now and just kind of bangs them out perfect every time and quick. Do you know what I mean? And he's got these like little allotted times and I just, I sent him a couple more over just recently and they just come back perfect. So on that side of things, Nathan just amazing. Also, the guy is kind of a genius at writing as well. And I've even, yeah, I've even went to Amazon and bought one of his books, spent my own money. <laughs> I could, I could get dizzy. <laughs> I'll get a headache and have to lie down. I got myself quarter share. These are the kind of books in Nathan's like solar clipper, all the kind of around his solar clipper books. And I think this is the first one that kicks off. And it is fantastic. If you just like science fiction, good old science fiction, honestly, Get over there, get the Nathan's. I'll put a link on the website. Come over and just, you know, start at the beginning of that quarter share. Then you've got half share, full share. And again, like Alan Steele, there is a, a number of books in this kind of, in this universe. Double share, captain share, owner share. Just fantastic. And Nathan's also done, the, went down the avenue as well. Went down the route of doing them in polio book as well. So they're there as well for you. So, but I would recommend going over and getting the ebook format. Just Excellent. Nathan, what a star. Thank you so much for kind of, you know, helping out on Starship Sova and getting this done. This, these, these books of yours are just amazing. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Observation Post by Alan M. Steele. Now I'm old, but when I was young, I did something which has weighed upon my conscience ever since. In all the years that followed, I've never told anyone about this. Not my late wife, or my children, or grandchildren, or any of my friends, not even the priests to whom I've dutifully confessed for all other sins. My actions may have saved the world, but they took the form of betrayal, and worse. A few months ago I was diagnosed with an inoperable and terminal form of cancer. My doctor has informed me that in all likelihood I'll be dead by the end of the year. Even so, I probably would have taken my secret to the grave, secure in the knowledge that no one would ever learn what I did nearly fifty years ago. That's fine with me. I'm not a hero. Just the other day, though, I saw someone in the street whom I haven't seen since 1962. Just the mere fact that I spotted this individual has made me change my mind. Perhaps people should know what happened, if only to remind them how dangerous our times have become and that our deeds 
will be remembered by later generations. My name is Floyd Moore. I was 23 years old in 1962, an ensign in the U.S. Navy, and a radioman aboard the Centurion. The Centurion wasn't a vessel. It was a blimp, one of five N-class airships built during the 50s as submarine hunters and later modified to serve as an advance early warning system in the days before the undersea SOSIS network was established. The Goodyear blimps you see at football games had about as much in common with the Centurion as a Chevy pickup does with a Corvette. Same manufacturer, but the similarity ends there. The Centurion was 343 feet long and 108 feet high, and was powered by two 800-horsepower engines. It had a double-decker car with crew space for 21. The bunks, bathroom, galley, and wardroom were squeezed into the upper deck above the cockpit, AEW compartment, and engine room. It could stay aloft for over 200 hours without having to land. Its cruising speed was 56 miles per hour, although in a pinch it could reach a maximum airspeed of 80 miles per hour. When I went through communications training at the Navy Flight School in Pensacola, I thought I was going to wind up aboard an aircraft carrier, so I was disappointed when I was put on a blimp instead. However, I soon discovered that I liked this job much better. The Centurion was based in Key West, so my newlywed wife and I were able to rent a little beach cottage off base, and my patrols never took me away from home for more than a few days. Our captain, Roy Gerard, had been flying blimps since World War II, and the crew was a tight-knit bunch. You could have easily taken us for a group of men who belonged to some club that happened to have its own blimp. The pleasure we took from our job, though, was tempered by the knowledge that the centurion's days were numbered. Blimps were obsolete. Planes had already taken over the task of hunting subs, and once the SOSIS net was in place, advance early warning would be taken from us, too. Now that America and Russia were shooting guys into space, there was even talk that there would soon be military space stations. Alan Shepard was a Navy man, and we were proud of him for being the first American in space. But we were all too aware that his Mercury capsule made a blimp look pretty old-fashioned. Whenever the Centurion went out on patrol, we knew that it might be for the last time. But our mission in the first week of October 62 was rather unusual. Instead of flying up the Atlantic coast to New England and back again, Captain Gerard had received orders to go the other way, down to the Bahamas, northeast of Cuba, where we would conduct aerial reconnaissance of the passages between the Acklands, Mayagoana, and Caicos Islands. We were supposed to be searching for Russian subs, of course. Nikita had lately become a little too chummy with Fidel for everyone's comfort, but we were also to be on the lookout for any freighters or fishing trawlers that appeared to be heading for Cuba. And we'd taken aboard a new crew member, Lieutenant Robert Arnault, a Navy intelligence officer temporarily replacing the J.G., who usually had the same job. None of us had ever met him before. He'd flown in from Washington only a couple of days earlier, and although he tried to be one of the guys, it soon became apparent that he wasn't going to fit in. Captain Gerard was still in command, but it was Lieutenant Arnault who called the shots. The skipper's sealed orders had been hand-delivered by the lieutenant, and they were the only people aboard who'd read them. The rest of us were in the dark as to what this was all about. Arnaud wasn't overbearing. He slept in the same bunk room and ate the same meals with us, and he could make small talk about the World Series or that new spy movie starring some fellow named Connery. But he wouldn't say a word about why we were here. 
You, of course, have the benefit of hindsight. It was at this time that the Soviet Union began a secret operation to arm Cuba with nuclear weapons. They did this because the U.S. had recently placed long-range nuclear missiles in Turkey and also to prevent another invasion like the one at the Bay of Pigs the year before. So Russian vessels were bringing in medium-range R-12s and the intermediate-range R-14s, any one of which could easily reach the American mainland, along with short-range battlefield rockets equipped with low-yield tactical nukes that could be used to repel an invasion. But the Americans had a mole in the Kremlin, a Soviet military intelligence officer who'd been feeding Russian secrets to the CIA. Colonel Penkovsky was eventually caught and executed, but not before he tipped off the Americans as to what Khrushchev was planning. The CIA didn't have any solid evidence that the USSR was sending nukes to Cuba, though, and they would need firm proof before they could take the matter to President Kennedy. So that's why the Centurion was watching for Russian vessels sailing to Cuba. For four days we orbited Acklands, Mayaguana, and Caicos, maintaining constant surveillance of the passengers between them from an altitude of 2,500 feet. We spotted plenty of ships, but only a couple were flying the red Soviet flag. When that happened, we'd descend to 1,500 feet and shadow them for a while, monitoring their wireless communications and taking pictures that we'd transmit back to Key West via radio facsimile. Nothing about their appearance suggested that they were carrying missiles, though, and their radios would go silent when we were in the vicinity. We weren't aware that most of the rockets were still on the way. The ships carrying them were still in the North Atlantic and wouldn't arrive in the Caribbean for another week or so. However, the first few R-12s had already reached Cuba, along with a handful of tactical missiles. The R-12s didn't have the range to hit Washington or New York, but they could blow away Miami or New Orleans. Not only that, but Khrushchev had given Castro permission to launch the missiles if the U.S. attacked his country. And Fidel had no problems with nuking the Yankees. Along with some Kremlin hardliners, he believed that a first strike would settle matters once and for all. They didn't know it, but Air Force General Curtis LeMay and many other American counterparts shared the same sentiments. The world is on the brink of nuclear war, and no one knew it yet. Almost no one, that is. On the morning of Friday, October 5th, I came down from the bunk room to take my watch at the radio board in the AWS compartment. As I relieved the radioman who'd handled the overnight shift, I noticed that the dawn sky was an ominous shade of red. For the past two days, we'd been receiving weather reports from Puerto Rico about a tropical storm off the Leeward Islands, southeast of our position. As soon as I saw those amber-streaked clouds, I had a hunch it was getting closer. I was right. No sooner had I sat down than the telex rang three times, signaling an incoming signal. I waited while the message printed out. Then I ripped it off, opened my code book, and spent the next minute or so deciphering it. Captain Gerard had just come downstairs when I handed the decoded message to him. Captain read it and sighed. Great, he muttered. That makes my day. The other officers in the AWS compartment turned to look at him as he went on. That tropical storm south of us has become a Cat 1 cyclone. It's now called Hurricane Daisy, and its present track has it becoming Cat 2 and turning north-northwest. That's coming our way, isn't it, Skipper? It came from our flight engineer, Jimmy Costa. Handsome Jimmy, we called him because he wasn't, who just stuck his head in from the engine room. Uh-huh. The captain folded the message and gave it back to me so I could file it. We're to land at the nearest available field and sit it out. A terse smile. 
Glad someone has the common sense to order us in. Everyone nodded. Back in the thirties, the Navy had lost two dirigibles, the Akron and the Macon, during storms at sea. No one in the airship corps had forgotten that disaster. But we were always scared that we'd get some dummy in charge of things who thought that a blimp could fly through a hurricane. Lucky for us, a dummy hadn't ridden our orders. But we still had a problem. Where to land? A blimp doesn't need a runway. It can touch down almost anywhere. But it does require a mooring tower if it's going to be tied down for a while, which is what we'd need to do if the Centurion was going to ride out a hurricane. Key West was too far away. We'd never make it before the storm overtook us. Puerto Rico was closer, but it lay in the direction Daisy was coming from. And the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo Bay was out of the question. Lieutenant Arnaud reminded the captain that our mission orders specifically stated that we were not to approach Cuba under any circumstances. Our navigator, Harry Taggart, pulled out a loose-leaf notebook and flipped to the list of possible airship landing sites in the Caribbean, and sure enough, he found one, Great Inagua, the larger pair of a small islands about 50 miles west of Caicos and 55 miles east of Cuba. Only one town, but it had an airfield, and on that airfield was a mooring tower which had been there since World War II. The Centurion was on the other side of Caicos. We could easily reach Great Inagua before Daisy came through. So I sent a telex to Key West, informing them of our plans, and as soon as it was confirmed, Phil Bennett turned his pilot's wheel and put us on a west-by-southwest bearing for Great Inagua. I called ahead to Matthewtown, and after a half-hour or so, I finally heard a Caribbean-accented voice through my headphones. He told me his name was Samuel Parker, and although he was surprised that an American airship was on his way, he assured me that he'd muster a ground crew for us. The Centurion reached the Inagua Islands shortly before noon. We passed over Little Inagua, a tiny spit of land and grass that appeared to have seabirds and wild goats as its sole inhabitants, and came upon Great Inagua, which wasn't much larger but at least showed signs of human presence. Matthewtown was located on the island's southwest corner. As the blimp's shadow passed over its sun-bleached rooftops, town people came out to stare at us. There didn't seem to be much down there. A couple of houses a church steeple, a handful of fishing boats tied up at the dock. The airstrip was primitive, a single runway which looked as if it had been last resurfaced around the time Amelia Earhart disappeared. The mooring tower was located at its coastal end, not far from a couple of small hangars on the verge of collapse. It looked like a misplaced Aztec pyramid, its iron frame rusted black and flecked with salt, Six dark men in shorts and island shirts lounged beside the antique flatbed truck that had brought them there, smoking cigarettes as they watched the blimp come down. It wasn't until Centurion was only twenty feet above the asphalt that one of them tossed away his smoke and sauntered out to raise his hands above his head while his companions trotted over to grab hold of our lines. The islanders dragged the ship the rest of the way in while one of them climbed a ladder up the tower and snapped a cable hook to the blimp's prow. A diesel winch then reeled in the cable until the centurion was snugly docked against the tower. Eight of our guys jumped out of the car and helped the local ground crew pull the lines as far as they would go, then used a sledgehammer to pound iron pitons into the sandy ground and lash the ropes to them. The skipper waited until he was sure the centurion wasn't going anywhere before he ordered Phil to cut the engines. I joined Captain Gerard and Lieutenant Arnaud as the locals ambled over to greet us, and it wasn't hard to tell that they were amused to have a Navy blimp make an emergency landing in their forgotten little part of the world. 
In fact, we'd later learn that the only reason why the tower hadn't been torn down for scrap metal was that every year the U.S. State Department sent the district of Enagua a $500 rent check. Among them was Samuel Parker, the person with whom I'd spoken on the radio. Besides running the airfield, he also was the customs officer. He made a great show of asking for our passports, which he carefully inspected as if we might be anyone except what our uniforms plainly showed us to be, before he formally shook hands with Captain Gerard and welcomed us to Great Anagua. The wind was beginning to pick up by then. The sky was still bright blue, but a dark wall of clouds had become visible on the southern horizon. We were prepared to spend the night in the blimp, but Mr. Parker wouldn't hear of it. There was a large guest house in Matthewtown, which we were welcome to use, and a restaurant across the street was already ready to have us over for dinner. Captain Gerard quickly took him up on the offer. After four days of sleeping in narrow bunks and having canned food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, some Caribbean hospitality would be a nice change of pace. We couldn't leave the centurion by itself, though, so the captain asked for two volunteers to stay with the blimp. Harry and Phil raised their hands. They'd keep watch on the blimp and use a walkie-talkie to call for help if the storm threatened to break it loose from its moorings. The rest of us fetched our duffel bags, then crowded into the back of the beat-up truck along with the ground crew, and held on for dear life as it made a bumpy, gear-grinding journey into Matthewtown. The town looked pretty much like any other small Caribbean port, whitewashed wood-frame houses on sand-filled streets, an abandoned prison dating back to the 1700s, a church and a few shops surrounding the town square. The kind of place inhabited mainly by native Caribbeans and a handful of retired British civil servants. They were probably more seagulls than people, not exactly a tourist destination. I figured that we were probably the only visitors the town had seen in a while. I was wrong. As it turned out, Daisy only sideswiped the Bahamas. By the end of the day, the hurricane turned north and headed for the east coast. The following day, it would dump several inches of rain on New England before petering out over Nova Scotia. As cyclones go, Daisy was something of a wallflower. There was no sense in taking the blimp aloft again. The crew spent the afternoon in the guest house, playing cards and listening to the series on the radio as wind-driven rain lashed against the windows. The storm subsided just before sundown, but the winds were still just high enough to make flying hazardous. So Captain Gerard decided we might as well spend the night on Great Anagua and take off again the next morning. Call it shore leave. None of us were unhappy with the decision, save for Lieutenant Arnell, who seemed nervous about the prospect of missing any Russian freighters bound for Cuba. But the Centurion was the skipper's blimp, and he wasn't about to do anything that would unnecessarily put his ship and crew in harm's way. Besides, he reminded Arnaud, any Soviet vessels in the vicinity had probably dropped anchor somewhere to ride out the hurricane. They weren't going anywhere either. The guest house was a two-story inn in the middle of Matthew Town, the doors to its rooms facing outside. The Centurion had arrived after what passed for tourist season on Great Inagua, so we were able to take over the whole place. Most of the crew shared quarters, but Captain Gerard claimed a room for his own. So did Lieutenant Arnaud, which nettled a lot of guys. Who does he think he is, was the general consensus. I didn't care one way or the other. I was bunking with handsome Jimmy, notorious among the crew for his snoring, so I knew I probably wouldn't get a lot of sleep that night. The island's only restaurant was just across the street, and as Mr. Parker had told us, the proprietors had been forewarned that twenty-one Navy men would be coming over for dinner. By the time we'd wandered over there, they'd laid out a nice spread— "'grilled tarpon, fresh from the dock, with hush puppies, greens, 
and the best key lime pie I've ever had. There was a bar in the next room, complete with a pool table and a TV. After we finished stuffing ourselves, we moved over there and settled in for an evening of goofing off. The regulars gradually filtered into the place, and at first they were put off by the presence of so many uniforms, perhaps afraid that we might be stereotypical American sailors and wreck the joint. But the captain had firmly told us to be on our best behavior, and after a while the locals warmed up to us. A couple of our guys got a pool tournament going with them, while others gathered at the TV to watch the Jackie Gleason show on a Miami station. I had just returned to the bar for another beer when I found a young woman sitting there. She was about my age, maybe a year or two older. Women had just started wearing their hair long again, and hers was blonde and fell down around the shoulders of her cotton summer dress. She wasn't a raving beauty, but she was pretty all the same, and she was there by herself. I had no intention of trying to pick her up. My marriage was solid. I was faithful to my wife, and one-night stands had never been my style anyway. It was just that I was tired of seeing no one but other guys, and a pretty girl would be good company for a change. So I walked over, introduced myself, and asked if I could join her. She was a little wary of me, but she nodded anyway, so I parked myself on the next bar stool and asked her about herself. She told me that her name was Helga. No last name, just Helga. And she was from West Germany. I picked up the European accent as soon as she spoke, so the latter was no surprise. She said that she was visiting Great Inagua with two male companions, her cousin Kurt and their friend Alex, an American, and that the three of them were avid bird watchers who'd come to the islands for its tropical birds. They were renting a house just south of town. She'd dropped in for a drink while Kurt and Alex visited a grocery store down the street. I told her who I was and why I was there, and she gave me a knowing smile. Yes, she'd seen the blimp when it had flown over the island. She was curious about why a Navy blimp would be in the area. Our mission was classified, so I told her that it was a routine patrol, nothing more. Even as I said this, though, I became aware of a presence behind me. Glancing over my shoulder, I saw that Arnaud had deposited himself on the next bar stool. Sorry, he said. Didn't mean to interrupt. He looked at me. Mind if I butt in, Floyd? Sure, we were just talking. I gestured to the woman sitting next to me. This is Helga. Helga, this is... Bob Arnaud. He raised a finger to the bartender, signaling him for another beer. This is the first time I'd heard him refer to himself as Bob. On the blimp, he was always Lieutenant Arnaud. Are you from around here? No. Helga shook her head. I was just telling Floyd that my friends and I are visiting Inagua to study its birds. They are the loveliest pink flamingos here, and we're photographing them. They're staying on the outskirts of town, I added, not wanting to be left out of the conversation. She says they're from... Where are you from? Arnaud asked, ignoring me. You're not from the States, I can tell. Helga laughed. I'm not. But my friend Alex is. My cousin and I are from West Germany. Really? Arnaud took a sip from the red stripe the bartender had just put in front of him. Which town? Hanover? Hanover. Great place. I was there once. Just a couple of years ago, I stayed in a hotel in the center of town. The, um, I know closed his eyes and tapped a finger against the bars of trying to conjure a memory. I can't remember the name. Yes, of course. Helga turned to me again. As I was saying, there are quite a number of West Indian flamingos here. Also parrots, herons, pingtails. You know, the major hotel in the middle of the city. There are many hotels in Hanover. Helga's smile flickered a bit as she gazed past me at him. This one was the biggest, he stared at her. You know which one I'm talking about, don't you? 
Helga's face lost its color, and she pointedly looked away from him. I looked over at Arnaud, wondering why he was being so rude. Lieutenant, we were talking about birds. You can't... can't what? Ensign. His eyes narrowed as he deliberately emphasized my lesser rank. Talk about hotels instead of birds? A humorless smile. I can, but I think it's more interesting that your friend can't give me the name of... Pardon me, is there a problem? I turned to see the tall, blond-haired man who'd come up from behind us. His accent was the same as Helga's, and it wasn't hard to guess that this was Kurt. I didn't know how long he'd been standing there, but I guessed that he'd overheard some of what Arnaud had said. The lieutenant's face turned red. Not at all, he replied, a little less sure of himself now. We're just talking about Germany. That's where you're from, right? Yes, it is. Kurt looked at Helga. We've bought dinner for this evening, and Alex is waiting in the car. Are you ready to? Yes, of course. Helga stood up from the bar stool, leaving her drink unfinished. She glanced at me and smiled. Pleased to meet you, Floyd. I hope you enjoy your visit here. Thanks, I said, and, um, happy bird-watching. Helga nodded in return, and she stepped past me to join her cousin. Both ignored Arnaud as they headed for the door. But the lieutenant wasn't done with them yet. He waited until the door closed behind them, then jumped off his stool and hurried to the front window. Hiding behind a curtain, he peered outside for a minute or so, then he turned to walk back to the bar. "'Lieutenant, what in the world are you?' I began. "'Listen, Floyd, you didn't really buy that story of hers, did you?' Arnaud didn't sit down again, but instead leaned against the counter. "'That they're here just to watch flamingos?' "'Sure, why not?' "'Oh, really?' He gave me a disgusted look, then moved closer, lowering his voice to a near whisper. Soviet ships in the vicinity of Cuba. And two Germans just happened to be visiting an island near two of the major passages from the Atlantic to the Cuban coast. Kind of a coincidence, isn't it? Maybe it is, I shrugged, and picked up my beer. And maybe it isn't. He paused to see if anyone was listening in, then went on. Don't you think it's kind of strange that someone from Hanover can't tell me the name of the biggest hotel in the city? You got me. What is it? I don't know. Never been there. A cunning grin. But she didn't know either. And that's the point. Oh, she's German, all right. So is her cousin, if that really is her cousin. The question is, which side of Checkpoint Charlie are they from? Now he had my interest. You think they might be from East Germany? I would explain why she couldn't answer my question, wouldn't it? He cocked his head toward the room. I happened to overhear the two of you talking, and when I heard that crowd accent of hers, I came over to see what was going on. When she asked you why you're here, that's when I stepped in. Oh, come on. I shook my head. It was just a friendly question. No, I don't think so. Arno hesitated. Floyd... There's a lot about this mission that you don't know, but believe me, there's good reasons why there might be red spies hanging around, and if that's what they are, we need to find out for sure. All of this was just a little too paranoid for me. I knew guys who'd spout John Birch Society nonsense about commie infiltrators at the drop of a red hat, and what Arnaud was saying sounded like more of the same. Arnaud must have read the expression on my face. You're going to help me, Ensign he added. Consider that an order. Yes, sir. I put down my beer, but didn't get off the stool. What would you like me to do, sir? 
Either he didn't catch my sarcasm, or he simply chose to ignore it. Did she see where they were staying? They've rented a house just south of town. That's all she told me. Hmm. He thought it over a moment. Well, I caught a glimpse of their car, and there can't be that many red 52 Buicks on the island. He pushed back from the bar. Come on. We're going to take a walk and see if we can spot where they've parked it. Find a car, find a house. The logic made sense, even if the motive didn't. I took a last slug of beer, then reluctantly got off the bar stool. Then what? Then we see if we can figure out what they're doing here. As if he hadn't decided already. It was dark when we left the restaurant. There was no one in the streets. The grocery store had closed for the night, as had the few other shops, and the only one lonely streetlight illuminated the center of town. There weren't even any sidewalks to roll up. We didn't tell anyone where we were going or why, and I was just as happy that we hadn't. I didn't want to have egg on my face when it turned out that the lieutenant's communist spies were nothing but some bird watchers on vacation. I just hoped that we'd get this nonsense over and done with before Captain Gerard noticed we were missing. The sky was overcast, with thick clouds shrouding the quarter moon, but it was easy to see where we were going. A lighthouse rose from the beach south of Matthew Town. Every few seconds its revolving beam turned our way, showing us the twigs, branches, and palm seeds that the storm had torn from the trees. After a mile or so we left the town behind and found ourselves on a narrow beachside road, with an occasional house here and there overlooking the ocean. We'd almost reached the lighthouse when we came upon a two-story wood-frame house built low on a rise across the road from the beach. There were lights in the ground-floor windows, but the upstairs was dark. As we came closer, we saw a carport half-hidden behind scrub brush and Spanish bayonet. We went a little way up the driveway, trying to walk lightly upon the gravel and broken seashells, and sure enough, there was the red Buick the lieutenant had seen drive away from the restaurant. Seeking cover in the bushes, we crept close enough to the house that we could peer in through a side window. We saw what looked like a dining room. An older man, thick-set and with gray hair combed back from his temple, sat at a table that had been set for late dinner. I assumed this was Alex, Helga and Kurt's American friend. His back was half-turned to us, and he appeared to be talking to someone in another room. We couldn't hear what was being said, but a moment later Helga appeared carrying a casserole dish and a pair of oven mitts. She carefully placed the dish on the table, then turned around and walked away again, probably returning to the kitchen. "'I don't see Kurt,' I whispered. "'If they're getting ready to eat, he's probably downstairs.' Arnaud pointed to the back of the house. "'Let's look around there,' he said, and then began making his way through the bushes. In the rear of the house was a set of outside stairs leading to a small second-floor porch." Without hesitation, Arnaud left the bushes and quickly made for the stairs. Reaching them, he turned to urgently gesture for me to follow him. The last thing I wanted to do was sneak into a house, especially when its tenants were there, but the lieutenant wasn't giving me any choice. I swore under my breath and then moved to join him. The wooden stairs were weather-beaten and a little rickety. The first couple of steps creaked under our shoes until we put most of our weight upon the railing. We carefully made our way up to the porch, where Arnaud stopped to test the knob of the door leading inside. The door was unlocked. He eased it open, revealing a darkness broken only by a sullen blue glow from some distant source. He entered the house, and even though it felt as if my heart were going to hammer its way through my ribs, I followed him. We found ourselves in an upstairs hallway, with a nearby staircase leading down to the first floor. Closed doors were to either side of us, and straight ahead was another room. Its door was ajar, 
and coming through the crack was the dim light that provided us with what little illumination we had. The light flickered a bit, and I figured it must be coming from a TV someone had left on. Unintelligible conversation from downstairs, broken by the scrape of chair legs across the wooden floor, told us that Helga, Kurt, and Alex were sitting down for dinner. I could only hope that they took their time savoring Helga's casserole as Arnaud and I tiptoed down the hall, drawn like moths toward the light at its end. The door made a soft groan as the lieutenant pushed it open, and for a second it seemed as if the voices coming from downstairs had faltered a little. But then Arnaud gave a low gasp. I looked past him, and all else was suddenly forgotten. I was right about the light. It was coming from a screen, four of them, in fact, arranged in a semicircle upon two wooden desks pulled together to form a shallow V, but they weren't TVs, or at least not like any I'd seen on sale at Sears. Holy smokes, Arno whispered as he walked slowly into the room. Will you look at that? I was looking all right, and I was having a hard time believing what I was seeing. The two center screens displayed what, at first glance, appeared to be high-altitude camera images like those taken by a U-2 spy plane, but nothing the Air Force or CIA put in the sky had ever produced pictures like these. They resembled photographic negatives, with the colors reversed, but even those colors were strangely accented with unnatural shades of green, red, and blue, making them look like weird cartoons. Although the images were obviously taken from a height, their magnification was much better than any aerial photos I'd ever seen. And they moved. On the right screen was what appeared to be a jungle clearing. Infantry trucks were parked in a row at one side of the clearing with a longer row of tank trucks lined up behind them. Across the clearing was a large shed that might have been a tobacco barn were it not for the flatbed truck slowly backing up it. A long, narrow cylinder with a cone at one end rested on the back of the truck. The tiny figures of the men slowly walked on either side of the vehicle while others patrolled the edges of the clearing, evidently watching the surrounding jungle. The left screen showed something even more chilling, an ocean harbor with a freighter docked at the wharf. The ship's cargo hold was open and a mobile crane parked on the wharf appeared to be raising something from below decks. As I watched, the crane moved just enough for me to make out what it was lifting from the freighter. Another cylindrical shape, much like the one on the other screen. God damn! Arnaud's voice was low but hoarse with anger. God damn! He pointed to the two screens. That's Cuba, and those are Soviet missiles. I barely paid attention to him. I was looking at something else. The screens themselves had caught my interest. They didn't look like normal cathode ray tubes, but instead were as flat as cafeteria trays, with no visible buttons or switches. The screens bookending the middle two were dark, but when I stepped closer, the one to the far left suddenly lit up to display a row of tiny symbols arranged against a background that fluctuated like a small aurora. On the desktops below the left and right screens were what appeared, at first, to be a pair of small portable typewriters, there were no rollers in them, though, and when I bent to examine them more closely, I saw that while their keyboards had the familiar Q-W-E-R-T-Y-U-I-O-P arrangement, the keys themselves were as flat as if they'd been painted on a glass surface, with a double row of buttons above them. Looking at them, I was reminded of something that I'd seen once before, the Enigma code-making machine used by the Germans during World War II. That looked a little like a typewriter, too, but it wasn't. It was a computer. Could this be? I told you so, 
Arnaud was still staring at the two middle screens. This is a red spy nest, some sort of observation post. I ignored him as I glanced behind the desks. No wires or cables. What was the power source? I was still puzzling over that when I noticed a plastic sheet about the size of a notebook page on the left desk next to the keyboard. I picked it up and almost dropped it again as it glowed with a light of its own, exposing another row of tiny symbols against a shifting background. I experimentally touched one of the symbols. The page instantly changed, this time to show another aerial view. A different jungle clearing, now in broad daylight, with tiny soldiers erecting what appeared to be an anti-aircraft missile launcher. "'This stuff isn't from Russia,' I murmured, hearing my voice tremble. "'It's not from East Germany, either. This is something else. I don't care where it's from. I know missiles when I see them. "'At night?' I pointed to the right center screen. "'Look at that truck and those people.' They're moving, Lieutenant. That's not a still picture. This is happening right now, while we're watching. Do the Reds have that kind of... The door creaked behind us. My heart stopped beating, and I just turned my head when the ceiling light suddenly came on. I winced against the abrupt glare, but not before I saw Helga, Kurt, and Alex standing in the doorway. For a long moment, both groups stared at one another in dumb surprise. I flashed back to when I was a kid and my father caught me stealing a quarter from his bedroom dresser. The look on my face must have been the same. This time Helga played my dad's role. Floyd, what are you doing here? she asked, more shocked than angry. Is this the man you are talking about? Alex's hand was still on the wall switch. Helga nodded and he glared at us. You're trespassing, he said, stating the obvious. And you're Russian spies, Arnaud snapped, as if a blunt accusation could justify our intrusion. Alex's mouth fell open. Kurt rapidly blinked, and Helga simply stared at him. Then Helga raised a hand to her mouth, but not quite so fast enough to hide her giggle. Kurt and Alex traded a glance, then Kurt's eyes rolled up as Alex tried to control the amused grin that threatened to spread across his face. No, no, we're not Russian spies. Alex relaxed a little, letting his hand drop from the light switch. I assure you, we... Then what's all this? Arnaud jabbed a finger at the screens. Tell me those aren't pictures of Soviet rockets in Cuba. That quickly sobered up the three of them. This was no longer funny. Meanwhile, I felt like I was the only person in the room who didn't know what was going on. Lieutenant, I asked, what makes you think the Russians are putting missiles in Cuba? Arnaud barely glanced at me. We've received intelligence that Ivan may be shipping nukes to Cuba, he said, not taking his eyes off Helga, Kurt, and Alex. That's what our mission is, to gather any evidence that the reports are true. The corner of his mouth lifted slightly. I think we've got all the proof we need right here. I looked at the screens again. The view of the Cuban harbor was still there, but the image in the center-right screen had changed. It now displayed what appeared to be a beach. In the nearby jungle, an anti-aircraft missile launcher was being covered by camouflage netting. It seemed to be the same shot as the one in the plastic sheet still in my hand, but this time it had the same photonegative appearance as the earlier images. I realized that they were from an apparent altitude of only a few hundred feet. That was much lower than our blimp could go without being seen, but the people on the ground were apparently unaware that they were being observed. Lieutenant, this isn't Russian equipment. I picked up one of the keyboards, held it out for him to see. They can't even make a decent toaster, for heaven's sake. Well, they're pretty good at building rockets. Never mind that. Have you ever seen TVs like these before? Or, 
I put down the keyboard, picked up the weird sheet of plastic. Whatever this is? Man, even NASA doesn't have stuff like this. Looking away from the three people at the door, Arnaud turned his head slightly to examine the equipment on the desks. For the first time, he seemed to notice something besides the missiles. Those could be aerial photos. At night, at the same time that things are happening on the ground, a new thought occurred to me. I turned to Helga. This is... this is from space, isn't it? She reluctantly nodded. We're using satellites, yes. One's far more sophisticated than any your country or the Soviet Union has now. High-resolution radar imaging. Don't be too specific, Alex said quietly. No, of course not. But Floyd's right. The Soviet Union does not possess technology of this kind, nor does East Germany. She hesitated. No one will, at least not for some time to come. Helga? Kurt cast a warning look at her. Let her speak, Alex said. The truth is no worse than the accusation. He frowned at Kurt. Besides, this is your fault for leaving the porch door unlocked. I asked you not to do that. Kurt's face reddened as Alex turned to Helga. Go on. Helga took a deep breath. We're observers, not spies, simply observers. We won't tell you where we're from, other than to say it's not a place that exists in this frame of time. Observers, I repeated. Then I remembered something the lieutenant had said just before we were discovered. Then, this is an observation post, I guess. She smiled slightly. That's a good way of putting it. We established this place for the purpose of watching and recording everything that will occur, or may occur, at this particular point in... What do you mean, will or may occur? Arnaud raised an eyebrow. Is there something we should know? Kurt muttered something under his breath. It may have been obscene, and Helga went pale, as if she'd suddenly realized that she may have said too much. The missiles, the lieutenant went on. This has to do with them, doesn't it? It does, yes. Now it was Alex's turn to be both reticent and informative. There are certain points in time, shall we say, when human existence hangs in the balance and its future depends on the actions of a few. This is one of those occasions, but even so, all the pertinent facts are not always recorded. Because of this, later generations are left to wonder how things might have happened differently if the situation had changed, even just a little. History is malleable, Helga said, because time itself is not linear. Any deviation, no matter how slight, can have enormous consequences, which in turn can lead to the creation of parallel timelines in which, look, I don't care about any of that. Arnaud was becoming impatient. I'm not sure he even listened at all. The only thing that matters is that the Russians are stockpiling missiles in Cuba, and those missiles may have nuclear warheads. Something cold went down my spine. Is this true? I asked. Do those things have nukes? Hell yes! The lieutenant regarded me as if I was an idiot. What would be the point of positioning rockets within 60 miles of our country if they didn't have nuclear warheads? He glared at the other three people in the room. Maybe you're not Russians, but that doesn't change a thing. I have to tell my people what's going on. He started to walk toward the door. Alex stepped in front of him. You can't do that. Arnaud halted, looking straight in the eye. Don't tell me what I can't do. If anyone else learns what you know, it will cause... Alex hesitated. Look... I can't reveal to you what's going to happen, but I can say that any changes to this timeline may be catastrophic. If you get out of my way, Arnaud took another step forward, and Alex raised his hands to stop. Bad move. 
The lieutenant had the same training in hand-to-hand combat as I did. Arnaud grabbed his arm with both hands, and in the next second Alex was on the floor, gasping in pain from the judo throw Arnaud had used on him. Kurt started to move, then froze as the lieutenant whirled toward him. The two men stared at each other, then Arnaud stepped over Alex and calmly walked out the door. Helga turned to me. Floyd, you can't let this happen. I was stunned by what I'd just seen, unable to move. I... I... Floyd, listen to me. Helga rushed across the room to grab me by the shoulders. What I've said is true. She went on, dropping her voice so that Arnaud couldn't hear her. We've seen the outcome in other timelines. If your president learns too early that there are Soviet missiles in Cuba, it will prompt him to launch an invasion or preemptive airstrike, but he doesn't know how many missiles are already there or their exact locations. And the Russian premier has given his officers in Cuba permission to use tactical missiles against an invasion force or launch intermediate-range missiles on the U.S. if there's an airstrike. You know what'll occur if that happens, Alex said. Kurt was helping him off the floor. He winced as he massaged his twisted right forearm. Kennedy will order a retaliatory nuclear strike against the Soviet Union. Khrushchev will respond by launching Russia's strategic missiles. Millions will die. Helga's eyes were locked on mine. The world as you know it will be destroyed. We've seen it happen. I was having trouble breathing, and my legs felt weak. From the other end of the hallway, I heard the porch door slam open. I heard Arnaud's footsteps trotting down the back stairs. Why? Why can't you? We cannot interfere. Kurt was apologetic, but almost laughably calm, as if he was informing me that I had an overdue book at the library. No matter what happens, we're prohibited from taking any actions ourselves. He looked at Alex and shook his head. We've done too much already. When we visit critical events such as this, go. Helga shook my arms, trying to snap me out of my shock. For the sake of everyone you know and love, stop him. I pushed her aside, hurried to the door. I no longer heard our nose shoes on the stairs. When I reached the back porch, a passing beam from the lighthouse captured him for a second as he marched down the driveway. I nearly fell down the stairs in my haste, but the lieutenant had already made it to the road by the time I caught up with him. Lieutenant, wait, I yelled. But he didn't stop or turn around. Just stop, will you? We can't. I laid a hand on his shoulder, and he whipped about to face me. What do you want? We, we, I was gasping for breath. We can't do this. If we tell them, Ensign Moore, at attention. Training took over. I snapped rigid, back straight, hands at sides, legs together. He stepped closer, so close that I could feel his breath on my face. The searchlight passed over us again, and I saw his eyes only inches from mine. Ensign Moore? You are a seaman in the United States Navy. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I can't hear you. Yes, sir. As a Navy seaman, you are sworn to protect your country. Is this correct? Yes, sir. As your superior officer, I order you to fulfill your oath. We will go to the blimp, where you will provide me with the means to send a coded priority message to NAV-INT, informing them of what we've discovered. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Outstanding. He stepped back, turned away from me. Follow me. The ray from the lighthouse passed above us again, and in that instant I saw at the side of the road a tree branch that had been knocked down by the storm. There was no hesitation. I knew what I had to do. I bent over and picked up the branch. It was about the size of a baseball bat and just as solid. I grasped it with both hands and swung it at the back of the lieutenant's head. There was a hollow crack as I felt it connect. 
Arnaud grunted and staggered forward, but before he could react or even turn around, I raised the branch above me, rushed toward him, and slammed it straight down on his skull. He gasped and fell, but he'd barely hit the ground before I brought the branch down upon his head again, and again, and again. The next time the light touched us, I saw he was dying. He lay face down on the road, arms stretched out. There was blood all over the back of his head, and it turned the pavement black as it flowed out from under him. I couldn't see his face, but I could hear a rattling rasp as he struggled for his last breath. I raised the branch again, but I didn't strike him. Instead, I watched as his hands twitched a couple of times. Then there was a soft sigh, and he was still. I was still staring at him when Helga touched my elbow. I'm sorry, she whispered. I'm so, so sorry. I nodded, then dropped the branch, went over to the side of the road, and threw up. History records that only a handful of lives were lost during the Cuban Missile Crisis. The pilot of the American U-2 that was shot down over Cuba by a Soviet anti-missile battery and the Russian soldiers who died when the truck carrying them went off a mountain road and rolled down an embankment. There was another casualty, though. U.S. Navy Intelligence Officer Lieutenant Robert Arnault, but he is not counted among the dead. Helga took me back to the house where she let me clean up in the bathroom while she washed the bloodstains from my shirt. There was a bottle of scotch in the kitchen. I poured myself a double, no chaser. Kurt and Alex returned a little while later. I noticed they'd taken off their shoes and rolled up their pants legs and that their bare feet were covered with sand. They told me what they'd done with Arnaud's body and how they'd thrown the branch into the woods and washed his blood off the road with buckets of seawater carried up from the beach. They'd also come up with an alibi. It sounded plausible to me, and we went over it a few times until I had it thoroughly memorized. I had another drink, because I needed it and also because it was part of my alibi, and then I put on my shirt and left the house. The hour was late by the time I walked back to Matthewtown. The restaurant was closed and the streets were quiet. A poker game was going on in someone's room at the guest house, but no one saw me when I came in. Handsome Jimmy was snoring loudly when I let myself into the room we shared, and he didn't wake up as I undressed in the dark and climbed into bed. It took a long time for me to fall asleep. Captain Gerard woke the crew up shortly after sunrise, going from room to room to knock on the door. It was then that Lieutenant Arnaud's absence was noted. His bed was unmade and his duffel bag untouched. Everyone remembered that he and I had left the bar together, so the captain came to me and asked if I'd seen him lately. I told the skipper that Arnaud had become interested in a girl we'd met at the bar, and that the two of us followed her back to the house where she was staying with her cousin and a friend. I hadn't wanted to go with him, I explained, but it seemed like the lieutenant had a little too much to drink, and so I'd gone along to make sure he stayed out of trouble. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. Arnaud made a scene when he caught up with Helga, insisting that she come back to the bar with him until Kurt and Alex threw him out of the house. I remained behind to apologize and ended up staying a while to have a few drinks. I hadn't seen the lieutenant after that. Why? Was there something wrong? Captain Gerard called the Matthew Town police and told them that a member of his crew was missing. About an hour later, the police chief came to the guest house with shocking news. The lieutenant was dead. His body discovered on the beach just outside of town. It appeared that someone had beaten him to death, then dragged his body to the waterside. Two sets of footprints in the sand attested to the fact that he'd been attacked by two people, probably while walking back to town. His watch was missing, and although his wallet was found on the beach, there was no cash in it. The police figured that he'd probably put up a fight, and the robbers had murdered him. Since I was the last person to see the lieutenant alive, I had to repeat my story several times. 
I'd have to do so again in front of a Navy Board of Inquiry charged with investigating the lieutenant's murder. I had my alibi down pat, and I was careful never to deviate from it, and so I never came under suspicion. And when the police went out to the house, the three vacationing bird watchers verified everything I had said. The lieutenant had made a pass at Helga, and so Kurt and Alex had made him leave, but let me stay a while because Helga liked me. The killers were never found, but that didn't surprise anyone in Matthewtown. There was very little crime on Great Inagua, but when it occurred, it was usually caused by one of the Haitian boat people who periodically came over from Hispaniola. That was a common explanation in the Bahamas. Whenever there was an unsolved crime, a Haitian was always responsible. The Navy investigation eventually reached the same conclusion. Lieutenant Arnaud had been simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the men who'd killed him had only been after his watch and money. Less than two weeks after the lieutenant's death, President Kennedy learned that the USSR had placed nuclear-tipped missiles on Cuba. Over the next nine days, America and Russia played a dangerous contest of wits, each poised to start a war no one could win. In the end, Kennedy and Khrushchev, two men who had seen war firsthand and knew its consequences, managed to persevere over the hawks on both sides to reach a diplomatic solution— in exchange for a promise that the U.S. would cease its attempts to remove Castro from power and respect Cuba's sovereign status, the USSR would remove its missiles from Cuba. The Centurion returned to Key West long before that happened. It flew only once more to watch for Russian submarines off the Atlantic coast during the crisis. The following month, the Navy decided to ground its blimps for good. So the Centurion was deflated for the last time, and its car eventually made its way to an aviation museum in Connecticut. I was transferred to the USS Lexington, where I worked as a communications officer before leaving the service a few years later. I was given an honorable discharge. The irony of this hasn't been lost on me, but I never told anyone what I did that night, even though it haunted me for years to come. Did I do the right thing? I'd like to think so, if only because it's helped me deal with my conscience. But something Helga told me that night has stayed with me as much as the murder itself. History is malleable, she said, because time itself is not linear. This implies that there was, there is, more than one outcome to the events of October 1962. Have those alternatives, which Helga claimed to have actually seen, Hinged upon what I did or did not do? Or was the lieutenant's death merely an incident that had no lasting consequences? I'll never know. But there is this. I'd moved to a small town outside Colorado Springs several years back, and a few days ago I went into the city to visit my doctor. My son drove me there. He had taken care of me since my wife died, and he had a few errands of his own. After I got through with the doctor's office, I walked down the street to a restaurant where I was to meet my son for lunch. My illness hasn't totally bedridden me yet, although I have to depend on a stroller and an oxygen tank to get around. It was midday, and the sidewalks were crowded, mainly with office workers on their way to one place or another. I'd almost reached the restaurant when the front door of an apartment building swung open and a young woman walked out. It was Helga. Of this, I'm absolutely certain. I've never forgotten her face, even after all these years, and although her hairstyle had changed and she was wearing a business suit, she hadn't aged a day. It was as if she'd come straight from Great Inagua with only a quick stop at a fashion shop and a hairdresser along the way. She didn't recognize me, of course, 
It was just a sick old man bent over a stroller with an oxygen line clipped to his nose. She strolled past me and was gone before I could say anything. So she's here, in our time. And why? Consider this. NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, has its headquarters at Cheyenne Mountain, just outside Colorado Springs. Since 1966, the Air Force has directed American strategic defense operations from an underground complex deep within the mountain. If a global nuclear war were to break out, this would be one of the first places to know. Perhaps it may only be a coincidence that I've seen Helga again, or perhaps it may not. I'm afraid I may live long enough to learn for certain. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Steeles. Alan, thank you so much. And Nathan, thank you. Jim, sir, top of the show. Thank you for a fantastic narration as well. I, As you know, I am pestering you for more. Don't forget, if you are interested in the Writer's Workshop, I'm gonna, I've got a little video, like a little prologue video, a little promo video of Peter Watts with his, you know, how his kind of title of his story is, scientists make for shitty stories, science fiction stories. I've got a little kind of video promo. I'll try and get that out and about if you're on the newsletter or anything like that. I'll put that out. If you want to sign up for that, Still a few weeks left to go for that. That would be fantastic. And a big thank you to, there's a couple of people who've signed up for monthly donations to kind of keep this old girl going. Do you know what I mean? What can I say? Thank you so much. We've been going six years, something like six years there now. I think it's six years. And, you know, we've been delivering this this work there for free every day, every week. If, um, if there's a chance you could, you know, recuperate and give a little back to the girl, that would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Unscathed. Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Of that procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.